Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have uh, Clinton Rubin. He's at uh, State University in New York, distinguished professor, part of the Center for Biotechnology, Musculoskeletal Research Laboratory. Uh, all this is happening at Stony Brook out on Long Island, again, as part of the SUNY school system. So, Clinton, thanks for coming. Richard, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, tell me about your research, please. Well, I guess I'm in a department of bioengineering, but I have sort of an unusual background. I, I'm an anatomist by training that uh, sort of wanted to grow up to be an architect of sort of was very interested in how uh, form follows function, I guess, and and uh, sort of got uh, captivated by nature being one of the best architects around and tried to look at how the environment might influence who we are, or how we're structured, et cetera. And I'm very interested in the fossil record, as it were, and uh, sort of saw that uh, the skeleton is a pretty good reflection of who we are historically over you know eons of time for 600 million years anyway but also how different challenges to the skeleton caused uh, changes in its shape and form so my research is really studies how functional challenges to the skeleton actually change its sort of its girth its curvature uh, its strength uh, etc. And it is through that sort of basic science question, how do mechanical signals or things like exercise, etc. influence the skeleton, we began to think about how we might be able to harness that skeletal sensitivity to mechanical signals, how we might harvest that to come up with new therapeutics, non-drug therapeutics, to treat diseases like osteoporosis, bone wasting, or obesity. Well, tell me, so what is the action of walking in my legs striking the ground due to my bones? It's a great question. Let me give you two extremes to that. So as you're walking down the street or running to the bus, whichever, uh, your bone, which is basically uh, resisting the compressive forces of your body weight, it actually deforms, it strains, it distorts. And the cells within bone, and bone is, is actually has quite a few cells sitting in it, actually are pretty good strain and stress sensors. So they pick up these challenges and they can send signals to other cells to either build up bone or to resorb bone. And going back to the extremes of that, probably, you know, we could think of being a couch potato. You know, we're all uh, you know, worried about COVID and we might be uh, cooped up in, in our homes, et cetera, and we're not getting out and walking the dog or running around the lake as much as we, we would otherwise. We might be a couch potato binge watching on Netflix. But really the extreme of that is uh, the people brave enough to go up into space and to spend 
weeks, if not months, on the space station circling the Earth. And one of the sort of the funny challenges of microgravity being not on Earth is that your all your physiologic systems adapt quite quickly. And in terms of the skeleton or the musculoskeletal system, both muscle and bone begin to waste away pretty fast. You actually start peeing out, if I may be so bold, bone quite quickly. Within 24 hours, uh, your calcium levels begin to increase and you actually start to dump bone pretty quickly. So to put that in context, in terms of osteoporosis or bone wasting as we age, that we peak, both men and women, peak our bone mass at the age of around 35. And then both men and women start losing bone, let's say about 2 to 3% per decade following that peak. So as we age, we're losing bone. And women following menopause can lose 2 to 3% bone per year for about three to eight years past the menopause. Now, as it turns out, astronauts have a much bigger challenge in that they're losing two to three percent bone per month. And now you put that wow. of the uh, that's uh, crazy. Now, if you're going to spend nine months traveling to Mars, of course, and you think of losing two to three percent bone per month, you know, by the time you get to Mars, you've lost you know upwards of fifty percent of your bone if you compound uh, the losses as you go. You have to like crawl onto the planet. Their their gravitational field is much less. Um, you are really at risk of your femoral neck snapping in two when you step onto the gravitational field of, of Mars. Now, well, at what, at what percentage of bone loss does it suddenly predispose you to you know breaking a hip or or cracking a bone? Well, that goes back to this issue of nature being this sort of the ultimate architect. You know, you you want to have lots of bone, right? Because you don't want to be walking down the street or running to the bus and having your bones break in two. But the problem is, is that both metabolically, it's tough to carry around a lot of bone, right? It it weighs a lot. It's about four to five times more dense than like fat. So you don't want too much bone because if you have too much bone, you can't chase your prey because you're going to be too slow. And you don't want so little bone that your bone breaks. So when you're being chased, your bone breaks. So it it is this sort of structural optimization that skeleton over many, many years, particularly as I study terrestrial locomotion, that your bone sort of tunes to its environment. And so take it from the, you know, the astronaut who's dumping bone so quickly to the other extreme of exercise that professional tennis players have about 30 to 35 more percent more bone in their playing arm than their non-playing arm. So that's that's telling you there when we get back to this tuning challenge that it in one sense you take away gravity, you take away that reaction walking down the street and loading up your bones, you're dumping out bone like crazy in space to all of a sudden playing tennis against Venus Williams, you know, when you whack that ball in trying to return her service, that's sending a mechanical signal that's anabolic to bone, so builds up bone. So how much bone is just right? Well, it's basically a bit of a Goldilocks paradigm, isn't it? You know, it can be too much or too little, and Goldilocks has it just right. So 
what we try to do is figure out how to make your skeleton think that it's still in an optimal design consideration, still 35 years old and resisting loads quite well, even though as you age, your bone becomes less sensitive to mechanical signals, if that makes sense. Has anyone developed a protocol that would keep you at your peak bone mass so that, you know, once you go past 35, you don't get 2 to 3% loss? Well, you know, so in putting in the context of osteopenia and osteoporosis, I mean, it's a, it's a real challenge, right, that, that you are at high risk of a bone fracture once you're over the age of 65 or 70, particularly uh, uh, women who, remember, uh, are sort of are as a function of time, you're peaking your bone mass at the age of 35. Both men and women are losing bone 3% per decade after that. The reason that about 80% of the cases of bone fracture due to osteoporosis happen in women and only 20% in men is that men start with more bone at the age of 35 than women. They, they actually are, have bigger bone structure they men don't aren't faced with the menopause, so they're not dumping bone like crazy for uh, that five or six years following menopause. And it turns out that women tend to live longer than than men. So uh, one of the reasons that men don't have as many osteoporotic fractures is sort of the the synthesis of those three things: more bone, no menopause, and not living as long. But certainly, you want to eat right. You want calcium in your diet. Uh, you want all the nutrients that, that bone needs to, to stay high quantity and high quality. And you want to exercise. And so many of us are sort of chasing this fountain of youth that is known as exercise and trying to figure out how little can you put into the system to sort of prevent the bone from being lost. Before we continue... I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. And actually, there's even a, a fun study that New York Times reported on uh, last week, I think at the end of December 2020, that points out that a real minimum. I mean, do you actually need to go out and run a marathon each day in order to, to keep your bone intact? Or do you need to, you know, lift 200 pounds uh, for one hour each day? Or you know, what is the minimum effective stimulus you can put into the skeleton to prevent? And this New York Times uh, summary of this study showed that if you actually sum up four seconds per day, or four seconds culminating in about 10 minutes of exercise. So these bouts, these intense bouts of exercise are sufficient to build up at least muscle. 
they don't translate to bone, but the musculoskeletal system is, is pretty much tuned uh, to the same sorts of signals. So what we do, what our lab does, is we take that to another extreme because we are not trying to optimize exercise regimes for Olympic athletes. What we're trying to do is to figure out for those of us that can't be particularly active because maybe we're injured or maybe we're elderly or maybe we have a disease that uh, doesn't allow us to go out and exercise like a cancer survivor you know, that's in the, um, has a number of treatments that, that doesn't allow them to go out and run around. What we try to do is find, figure out what is bone looking for and try to distill it down to a mechanical regimen that actually allows the good of exercise to be delivered to the skeleton without the need to go out and play tennis against Venus Williams or to go out and run a marathon each day. Well, this is probably like an obvious question, but is there any ancillary benefit if I do squats that my arms will gain any bone? Or is well, it just the bone itself that I stress that gains the benefit? Well, cer certainly I think everyone from your physician to your next door neighbor will tell you that exercise is good for you. And so, yeah, there are lots of ancillary benefits to going out and, you know, even running around the block, you know, the, to your cardiovascular system, to your neuromuscular system, even to the way that you think. I mean, there are several studies out there, as I'm sure you know, and your listeners know, that exercise is actually even good for your brain. And you could either try to oversimplify it, which I believe is an oversimplification, that it's quite simply the delivery of you know, more oxygen and nutrients to these to your muscle, your brain, your bone, that that's actually sort of the, the good element of exercise. But in reality, what many people or many scientists who study mechanical signals believe now that the cells themselves are mechanoreceptors and that by delivering mechanical signals of one type or another, that the cell perceives it and responds to it in very, very specific ways. So again, go back to the challenge of Venus Williams and her humerus or, or her serving arm or the astronaut who's no longer sort of resisting gravity. Those cells are actually perceiving a mechanical signal or the absence thereof and they're recruiting a cell population to respond or to the presence or absence of mechanical signals. We're get, again reminding ourselves that the trip to Mars, the skeleton doesn't know it's going to Mars. The skeleton is trying to optimize its design to not be metabolically demanding when it's not needed. But then you don't want a skinny, poorly structured skeleton to be trying to return serve to Venus Williams. So, so what we do is, you know, what our lab's work has done over the past 30 more or more years is tried to figure out what it is about exercise that is important to bone cells or its progenitor population, the mesenchymal stem cells and the bone marrow. What is it that they are looking for and how can we drive them to build bone rather than signal 
for a resorption or a loss of bone. And can that be achieved, again, uh, without necessarily requiring you or me to do squats? I mean, I don't know about you. I don't like doing squats. And I certainly don't want to play tennis against Venus Williams. But then again, if I'm 75 and I have poor bone quality, I can't ask that subject to go out and run a marathon each day. So how can I provide a mechanical signal to that 75-year-old without actually requiring them to go out and run each day? Not, not that but why does it have that. to be running versus just some light exercise? Why does it have to be one or right. the other? It sounds like extremes. Dude. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You're exactly right, and that's exactly what we're trying to do. We are trying to figure out, you know, what is the real components the cells are looking for, and is there a way we can deliver them, sort of like a magic bullet, if you will, is there a way we can deliver mechanical signals to the bone or uh, the bone cells that they like without actually requiring uh, sort of intense exercise? And so... You know, well, has a uh, like vibration table has been used or, you know, right, stim, so, would that work? Is it the muscles will pull on the bones? Right. So, so is there a surrogate? So what our lab is really driving towards, is there a surrogate for exercise? And I'm glad you brought up the issue of vibration. Um, you know, vibration can be from our view, a good thing, or as, you know, many safety organizations will tell you, or truck drivers will tell you, you know, vibration can be a really bad thing. So let's take vibration now just for a moment that as your muscles contract, they're really actually pretty inefficient motors. So as you pick up your beer can or if you pick up your uh, kettleballs during weightlifting or as you pick up even a pen, your muscles as they contract being inefficient motors are actually vibrating. And it turns out that they vibrate at a very specific frequency bandwidth. Now, frequency being cycles per second. So you asked earlier about walking. Now, we typically walk at around one hertz or one cycle per second. But as your muscles contract, they're actually contracting between 20 to 50 cycles per second. So as you are squatting, even though you're squatting at one cycle per second to stick with the idea of walking, your muscles are actually buzzing away at 20 to 50 cycles per second. Now, in order to contract and generate force, they don't necessarily change the, their frequency domain. They actually change the number of muscle fibers they are recruiting. So picking up a coffee cup or picking up a kettleball your muscles are still being inefficient motors, but as the challenge becomes greater, they start recruiting more muscle fibers to achieve that goal. So what we began to wonder about in our lab is rather than introduce a surrogate for exercise that's based on this dominant frequency of walking or running at two cycles per second, rather than perhaps muscle and therefore bone is more sensitive to these higher frequency domains, 20 to 50 cycles per second. So we in our lab have tried to develop 
ways of introducing higher frequency signals to bone and muscle, to the standing human that is based on frequency and not amplitude. So again, rather than trying to think of, can we slam the body with mechanical signals that are similar to those you might endure during running, two cycles per second, we try to mimic what the muscles might do at 20 to 50 cycles per second and deliver them to the weight-bearing skeleton. So standing on like a vibrating bathroom scale or standing on your washing machine as it's running is actually delivering higher frequency signals to the bone and muscle that we are think we think are very important to the maintenance and building of the skeletal tissue. Well, it sounds like you could tune a muscle stem or a vibration table that you stand on to match the typical frequency of muscle contraction. And maybe that would induce, uh, you know, piezoelectric effects in the bone and cause them to grow. Right. So, so uh, you've summarized in one sentence that we've struggled for 30 years to actually achieve. So we do have a vibrating table. It looks a bit like a pizza box or a big bathroom scale that you stand on. And it turns out that above five hertz, five cycles per second, the transmissibility function or, or the way that your bone and joints work as a material, it becomes, your skeleton becomes a great transducer of mechanical signals. So you can deliver very, very, very small mechanical signals to the bottom of your foot while you're standing and it actually transmits up through your femur and spine, so, so through your lower appendicular skeleton into your axial skeleton quite efficiently. So we deliver these 30 hertz, 30 cycle per second signals at a fraction of G, so G being Earth's gravitational field. So if you think Earth's G is 1G, 9.8 meters per second squared, we deliver around 30 to 40% of that to the standing human, which may sound really, really, really small, which it is. It's about 100 microns in displacement, 120 microns in displacement. But relative to what your muscle is doing in that frequency domain is actually quite large. So by delivering vibration at 30 hertz at 0.4 G, while it's a really small signal, certainly much less than that poor truck driver who's complaining about back pain or the helicopter uh, pilot or, or many, many people who suffer from vibration fatigue or vibration disease in the workplace, our signals are considered safe for between four to eight hours per day. And we have run through a number of cell studies studies of bone cells or stem cells, a number of animal studies that ranging from mice and rats and turkeys and, and sheep of all things to human clinical trials where we've examined the capacity of these short bursts of vibration. They're considered safe by the FDA. Can we, A, stop bone from being lost, i.e. the trip to Mars, you know, the, the goal is to preserve your skeleton. Or in the case of bone disease, those suffering from osteoporosis, can we build bone? 
And we've shown in a range of clinical studies that to misquote Obama, yes, we can, right? We can take these mechanical signals and stimulate the bone cells and their progenitors to build up bone and to slow down the osteoclast, the bone eating cells, and suppress their activity with the end point being that we can preserve and build bone without exercise, but using this surrogate for exercise, these mechanical signals in this higher frequency domain. So what percentage of, uh, do you just get bone retention or do you actually get bone density improvements? So it depends on the clinical trial that, that you design. So we actually believe that an important element in this strategy is not only stimulating the bone cells that exist in your skeleton and my skeleton, but to actually recruit new cells to produce bone. So the cells that produce bone are these cells called osteoblasts, and they come from the bone marrow. Its stem cell progenitors are mesenchymal stem cells. Mesenchymal stem cells are kind of funny in that they can be, I guess, differentiate into being bone cells or cartilage cells or ligament or tendon or actually muscle cells if they're satellite cells. So MSCs can become higher order connective tissue, bone and connective tissue, or they can also become, of all things, fat. They become adipocytes. And as you age, not only are we losing bone after the age of 35, we're actually becoming, help us, we're becoming fatter. We build up subcutaneous and lots of fat depots actually within our thoracic cavity. You know, they're building up in some of our major organ systems. And we believe that part of that is the mesenchymal stem cells in the bone marrow are no longer being committed to a bone and muscle pathway, but instead are sort of taking this default pathway to the formation of fat. And so we believe that one of the benefits of exercise is that not only are you retaining bone and avoiding osteoporosis and building muscle and avoiding sarcopenia, that by taking this finite number of MSCs, the stem cells, and driving them to bone and muscle, what you're also doing is you're biasing them away from a fat lineage. And so that one of the benefits of exercise, or what we've also found, at least in our animal experiments, one of the benefits of buzzing our animals as we're building bone and muscle is we suppress fat. So long answer to your short question is that in the young populations that we've looked at, kids with Duchenne's or kids with cerebral palsy or kids that are in a remission from cancer but aren't particularly active, that they have pretty crappy bones through no fault of the skeletal system, but just that these kids are not particularly active because of their disabling conditions. And our trials have shown that these kids that stand on these devices, we can build bone in a pretty robust way. So the answer to your question is in the younger population, and we believe as part of the benefit of having a vibrant bone marrow population of MSCs is that we can get a very robust response to the buzzing plate in a young population 
that actually turns out to be anabolic and ends up with more bone uh, as a function of time. And this is in contrast to our elder cohorts or elder studies, postmenopausal women or the frill elderly, where the response is not necessarily anti-anabolic. We aren't generating bone, but what we're doing is we're suppressing the loss of bone. So again, uh, in the end, you know, so long as your skeleton outlives you without fracturing, that would be a pretty good treatment of osteoporosis. But again, remembering for these kids, because you're peaking your bone mass at the age of 35, one of the goals is to take our teenagers or adolescent skeleton and build it up as much as we can so that when all the sort of our other Will that make it peak longer or peak higher? Let's say you're like, if you're a weightlifter, you know, in your 20s, will you peak higher or you peak longer or you'll be the exact same as everyone else if you stop and you hit, hit 35 and beyond? Well, you know, it's a great question and that I don't think that, that maybe someone in your audience actually knows the answer to. In the bone world, I don't think that we know. It is a stereotype or an overgeneralization that sort of that age between 30 and 40 is really where you're going to reach your peak. And all of your systems, you know, the consequence of aging is that you begin to lose bone, muscle, brain tissue. I mean, all sorts of systems begin to suffer the consequences of aging. So in all cases, you want to be as smart as you can, and you want to be as strong as you can, and you want to be have the best heart you can all by the time you're 30 to 40 so that you're well-armed to fight the ravages of aging. Have you compared people that are like in their 70s, ones that, um, you know, work out versus ones that don't and look to see like if, uh, or someone that's been an athlete all their life, you know, how do they look at 70 versus someone that's sedentary? It's a great question. And and many studies that none from our lab, but, but many, you know, great studies are out there that show the benefits of, of lifelong commitment to exercise really benefits everything from brain tissue to bone tissue. So absolutely, if you were a college athlete and then say, forget about it, I'm going to sit behind my desk and uh, you know, forget about exercise because my knees hurt, et cetera, you, know, you would be well advised to do your best to get up and at least start walking around the block a couple of times per week or even per day. You know, it's, it's similar to smoking, right? If you're a lifelong smoker, it's trouble. But if you give up as soon as you can, your body to a certain degree will recover. Contrast, you know, the, the converse is also true, that if you've never exercised, but then when you're 50 or 60, you decide to take it up, there is evidence that you will slow down the ravages of aging. But to answer your question, no doubt whatsoever that if you are a lifelong exerciser, all of the tissues in your body, bone, muscle, brain, heart, liver, kidney, etc., are benefiting. And remember, you know, to go back to where this whole discussion started, all the cells in your body are mechanosensitive. And from my view, mechano-responsive. So it's not, going back to the oversimplification that I'm trying to avoid, it's not 
simply the benefits of exercise, delivering oxygen to your tissues or getting rid sort of the detritus of your cells. It is the cells like to be mechanically challenged, right? So each and every cell in your body, if they are mechanically challenged, both by, let's say, by exercise, the simplest condition, and certainly the benefits of oxygen and diffusion, no doubt. But I believe that there are benefits to all of your cell populations to be mechanically challenged, and that if we all find ourselves for God knows what reason, you know, it's like the Disney movie Wall-E, you know, where we all basically take up living in space and we become you know, sort of blobs without necessarily technically, all of your systems are going to ultimately begin to fail. What happens in um, in osteoporosis? Has anyone looked longitudinally and been able to get maybe cadaver bones and to see like what happens first and next and next and what does the progression look like? Not just Um, the bone, but the muscles, tendons, ligaments, everything. Right. So there are many, many studies out there that again, go back to you know, this sort of use it or lose it phenomenon. Uh, There have been lots of studies that show the impact of the menopause, the impact of childbirth, the impact of nutrition, you know, having milk in your diet, uh, the impact of gender, the impact of race, the impact of sunlight, all of these things, you know, what you want to make sure is you exercise, eat right, get vitamin D and sunlight, anything you can to provide any of the bricks that are critical to building up bone. Nevertheless, all of us will be losing bone following that fourth decade. And so in the first thing to go, you know, there are two types of bone. There's cortical, dense cortical bone, like when you bang your shin in your tibia, um, that's the dense cortical bone and it hurts like the dickens. But the first bone to give up the ship is the trabecular bone, the bone towards the ends of near your joints in the metaphysis and the epiphysis, or the trabeculae that fill up your, your spine, your vertebrae. As those bridges or those scaffolds of bone begin to break down and they lose their connectivity, the way they're put together, your bone becomes weaker. So just imagine next time you're driving across a bridge and we tend to think of how thick those big buttresses, those piers uh, are that that are holding up the bridge. Now imagine that rust comes in and starts to corrode the bridge, the, the structure, but they're also beginning to corrode the elements of the cable. It becomes pretty scary when the fibers of the cable begin to break down and the truck rumbling by starts to snap that cable. It's basically all elements of your skeleton are important. The cancellus, the cortical bone, how they're put together, but certainly how viable they are. There's a disease called osteonecrosis or avascular necrosis where the cells in your uh, bone begin to die. Remember that your adult skeleton, about 5% of your skeleton is always turning over, right? Just because you're 70 years old doesn't mean the bone in your skeleton is, is 70 years old. It's always turning over. It just turns over more slowly as we age. 
So, you know, keep those cells active, keep them producing bone, suppress the, the cells that are eating up the bone and make sure that your skeleton is eats well, make sure you're eating lots of uh, calcium, make sure you chose your parents well. There's a lot of genetic susceptibility to osteoporosis, but all of us have lots of things available to us to keep your bone from resorbing away as much as you can. What kind of future experimentation are you doing or do you want to do and what do you want to figure out in particular? Well, our lab is committed to this sort of hierarchical approach. I mean, we study everything from, you know, the nucleus within the cells and what, are, you know, what is it about mechanical signals that turn on the transcriptional machinery to build up bone? How are these mecha- mechanical signals transduced to the bone marrow? How do the MSCs, the stem cells, decide to grow up to be bone cells rather than fat cells? What are those chemical signals? What are those mechanical signals? What happens? You know, what are the consequences of aging? You know, how do we slow that process down? How do other cells in the body uh, pick up mechanical signals? How do we translate these discoveries at the benchtop that we are making or that other labs around the world are making? How do we translate them into new therapeutics that can fight uh, diseases of the skeleton? Or how can these mechanical signals fight obesity? How well do they work with some of the very powerful drugs that are available to treat osteoporosis? Can you put together exercise or mechanical signals to reduce the need for drugs? Or as importantly, how do mechanical signals help fight other diseases like cancer? We've talked about osteoporosis and obesity to a certain degree. There's lots of evidence out there that exercise also helps suppress the progression of cancer or also helps in the recovery of cancer. How is that? Is that simply mechanical signals being delivered to healthy tissues to fight tumorigenesis? Or is there something about mechanical signals that can help suppress tumor progression? So those are sorts of the things, some of the things that our lab is studying right now. Um, One last question. I've been to places where they put like your legs in these, you know, air-filled bladders and they squeeze your legs, like, you know, compression therapy. Does that have any uh, bearing on, you know, what will happen to the bone if you do compressions instead of just vibration or if you like a light form of, you know, like tapping someone or percussing them or pertussing them uh, multiple times? Does that do anything? You know, it's not something that we've studied and I, I, I'm not here to, to sort of take issue with other people's strategies in their lab and how they translate to the clinic, I just, you know, want to make certain that, you know, the things that we've worked so hard on over the decades isn't thrown into this sort of like, isn't considered sort of false hope or snake oil for that matter. So if it's based on hardcore science where there's evidence, preclinical evidence in cells or in animals, and that it's translated very carefully to be able to be safe and efficacious for the treatment of disease? I would say, sure. But I would also say that the work in our lab, and I think the work in in many other people's labs, is trying to learn from nature. So the evolution of our own work and how we've ended up 
building these pizza box-like devices to buzz skeletons is not based on, hey, let's vibrate a skeleton. It's based on trying to become a surrogate for what nature has spent three billion years doing, right? Which is making cells mechanically sensitive to things like gravity. Can we use or partner with nature to figure out how to take these ever-present, these omnipresent signals of gravity and deliver them to the skeleton in a beneficial way. So I'm not here to say that bladders around a or cuffs around a leg will be of benefit. I'm not quite sure how tens of millions of people might be using something like that. I'm not quite sure I would want to be a guinea pig for such a long-term experiment. But I would say to your listeners that have come this far in, in our discussion that there is no replacement for Mother Nature. There is no real optimal surrogate for exercise. We're striving towards that. But if you're able to get up and run around the block a couple of times a week or ideally a couple of times a day, I'd say take that strategy. But you know, to take it to the extreme, I would say if you're lying down, sit up. If you're sitting down, stand up. If you're standing, walk around. And if you're walking around, then run around. Because exercise and all of the complex signals that it delivers to your organ systems, you know, they're there for a reason. And we've evolved to sense them and perceive them. They're important to the viability and vitality of your organ systems. Don't deny your body exercise. Okay, makes sense. Clinton, what's the best way for people to, uh, you know, if they have a bone to pick with you, or they just want to learn about your research, you know, where can they go? Uh, Well, they can certainly reach out to me if they Google me. uh, You know, a good way to do this would be to Google Clinton and Ruben, R-U-B-I-N. So Clinton, C-L-I-N-T-O-N, Ruben, R-U-B-I-N, and Stony Brook, S-T-O-N-Y space Brook, B-R-O-O-K. So Clinton Rubin Stunnybrook, you could Google me and, and sort of find some YouTube videos that we've done, everything from why cats purr up to summaries of our clinical trials, or, you know, putting all the cards on the table here. We do have partnerships uh, with industry. There is a company, Merodyne. So in revealing all my conflicts of interest, Uh, We have translated and patented a number of our interventions. Sort of the work that we've described here has been licensed by a company called Marodyne, M-A-R-O-D-Y-N-E. So if you uh, search on Marodyne.com, you can actually see a number of the studies that we've done. So either on my academic website or on Marodyne's commercial website, you can see how science translates to the clinic. Okay, well, very good. Clinton, thanks for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much. I hope you have enjoyed this. I certainly have. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. 
If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.